And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Governor Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island is quietly one of the most intriguing political stories in the country. She ran for state treasurer, and that state took on their troubled pension system, made some difficult decisions that rankled Democratic constituencies as well as Republican, and uh, managed to get elected governor four years later and then re-elected. She's chairman of the Democratic Governors Association and a very strong voice for centrists within the Democratic Party. I sat down with her the other day for a live podcast at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and here is that conversation. Welcome here to the Axe Files, to the Institute of Politics. I am, you know, not an expert on ethnic names, but your son's very Italian. Yeah, there you go. You went out on a limb with that one. Gina Marie Raimondo, absolutely. (laughs) Tell me about your family and uh, how they, they came here. Yeah. First of all, thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you guys for all being here. you know, we, I probably describe my family as very Italian. My mother is Giuseppina, my father's Giuseppe, and <laughs> that it's true. Uh, and in fact, when I brought my then boyfriend, now husband, home, his name's Andy, he's from Michigan, when I brought him home for the first time, my mother insisted on calling him. Anthony a few times. <laughs> but now he's... Uh, I mean, he, were you, weren't you worth it to him to change his name? Exactly. That's what I was thinking. He actually <laughs> ate his way into my family, which worked out beautifully. <laughs> and, uh, you know, now we have two kids. But anyway, I grew up in Rhode Island. Um, my mom still lives in the house that I grew up in. I'm the youngest of three kids. Talk about um, your grandparents. Um, my grandparents, yeah, my grandparents on both of my parents' side, uh, came when they were teenagers alone from Italy and landed on Atwells Avenue in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, I actually grew up with my grandfather in, in our house. After his wife died, we took him into our house. There wasn't a lot of space in our house, but there was a lot of love and good food and, and noise. Um, there were six of us, you know, all crammed into a little house. My brother and my grandpa shared a room together. And you know, I grew up Sundays listening to Italian radio and, and learning how to cook. And I grew up listening to stories from my grandfather saying, you know, when he came to this country, uh, he basically worked all day and then would go to the public library at night and try to learn English. And that, as I've become more involved in public life, that story motivates me because the thing is, the library was open at night and it was available for him and he went to public school. And, you know, basic things, public yeah. libraries, public schools, Not to mention the, con- the country accepted him as an immigrant. So here's an interesting story, David. Um, I learned this just recently. My uh, grandfather, ser- my mother's father, who lived in the house with us, served in the First World War. We recently saw his enlistment papers at the time he served, he was an undocumented immigrant. And the reason I know that is so he, he came here, 
he started a business here, he owned a restaurant, and then he went off to fight in the First World War. When he came back, they had a once-of-its-kind naturalization ceremony for those who had fought in the army. And there was a big story about it in the Boston Globe at the time. Hmm. And I, clearly, in his enlistment papers, he list, was listed as an Italian, which means he lived here for years as a quote-unquote illegal immigrant. That's my story. That's my family. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, was then went on to be married, had two children, and frankly, we need to keep that in mind because that's my story and that's the American story. Yeah. You know, my father was a, um, a an immigrant from Eastern Europe. He got here two years uh, in 1922. Um, in 1924, you're a student of history, but the this draconian. Uh, anti-immigration bill was passed by the Congress that set strict quotas for Jews and other categories of people. It's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, there were many who, who might have escaped the Holocaust who, who didn't es escape the Holocaust. But yeah. we have to remind ourselves that this sort of feverish anti-immigrant sentiment, we've experienced it before. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's aimed at... Uh, Hispanics now, but uh, you know, back in the day, it was Italians, it was Poles, it was Jews. Um, no, my my father, uh, he was born in this country, but his parents were both immigrants from Italy. His dad was a butcher. His mom's a stay-at-home mom. They had five kids. And my dad, I guess his English wasn't too great in first, by the time he was in first grade. And he tells a story that the teacher held him back because she said his English wasn't good enough. But as retold by my dad, who was kind of bitter about it, <laughs> he's like, you know, she just didn't like Italians and uh, held me back saying my English wasn't too good. So, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, people have felt that for a long time. Um, you uh, were kind of a prodigy uh, within your, I mean, I can say, you don't have so to say it about yourself. Yeah. Um, you, I noticed that you, you went to Catholic schools, is that right? I did, yeah. I did. And, and one of them was, uh, you were among the first women to attend. The first, I went to LaSalle Academy, it's a Christian Brothers High School in Providence, and they had been all boys, and then they went co-ed in 85, and I went first class of boys and girls. How was that? I want to ask you, because I, I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York. Uh, it got, uh, and the first group of women came to Stuyvesant while I was there. We had 3,000 mm. students. So, you know, what is it, 2,987 adolescent boys and 13 <laughs> women. I, I would think that'd be hard. So it will, even it will, a Catholic school. Yes, exactly, even a Catholic school. Uh, I thought it was terrific, truthfully. You know, there were times when it certainly wasn't 50-50 to start. I, I can't now remember. Um, it, was, it was lopsided, but not overly lopsided. I felt special. You know, we girls at the time felt like we were pioneers, and it was a cool thing to do. Um, of course, we like to think that was a great turning point in LaSalle, and it's been better every day since for, for the fact that it's boys and girls. We gave life to the, to the institution. But uh, I had, the Christian brothers were fantastic. They were. They were embracing of us from day one. And at least in my experience, you know, they had sports team. We had to start every sports team. I started the girls' volleyball team, you know, every girls' sports team. 
they cheered us on the whole way. Mm -hmm. Really encouraging, supportive, empowering. Um, I sent my daughter there now to that high school. So uh, it was fantastic. You were the valedictorian. I was, yeah. Yeah. Was and that... my, my kids teased me. They were like, Mom, we know you were good at school. <laughs> Why were you good at school? I, I don't know. I worked pretty hard, I think. I just worked hard. Look, I'll be very honest. My parents, probably like yours, a lot of people here, they sacrificed so much for my brother and my sister and me. Um, and I didn't want to let them down, and I wanted to work as hard as I could. And I always, I always just you know, felt kind of an obligation. We had so many opportunities that they never had, and I didn't want to squander that. I wanted to make the best of all these chances that they gave me. So you got into Harvard. Yeah. Did they have to sacrifice for you to go there? Hugely, hugely. I will never Could forget. Could you not have got, you couldn't get into the University of Chicago? Was that? Well, the... apparently they turned me down. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. they turned me down. Um, it's a beautiful campus, by the way. It is, it's you should have visited then. I should have. Yes. It's extraordinary. Yeah. And you um, know what, it never, it, the weather's always good here. Yeah, I see that, anyway. I can see that, I can <laughs> see that. As long as you've never been. Particularly in February, I'm sure yeah. it's just lovely. Um, no, truthfully, I never got on a plane until I went to college. Like, you know, it, well, my folks weren't able to like, take me on college tours, hop on a plane and go visit Chicago. Yeah. You know, that wasn't an option. Yeah. You know, we just, I did my applications and did my best. But um, anyway, when I got into Harvard, my mom sat me down and said, hey, Gina, if you want to go, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to afford this, but your dad and I will make it work. You're going to have to work. You're going to have to get jobs. You're going to have to take loans. And we've been saving for this for a long time, and we'll do everything we can. But she said, are you sure you want to go? Because there's a lot of wealthier kids there, and we're not going to be able to give you all of that mm. other stuff. And at the time, I said to my mother, and now, again, I was 18 years old and kind of clueless, I said... You know, we've got some 18-year-olds. Yeah, they're much more sophisticated than I ever was. <laughs> I, said, I said, Mom, we don't have a lot of money, but I'm smart. Like, all the kids are the same. I got in. I want to go. And she was right. You know, I got to school. I had to work two or three jobs during term, two or three jobs during summer. Um, couldn't go off on vacation, you know, I came out saddled with a bunch of loans. But God bless them, they put every last bit of savings, I think, into getting me through, and I'm so grateful that they did. And how did you change through that experience uh, at Harvard? How did, how did your vistas change? Did, when you went there, did you have any idea that and did you say, someday I'm going to be treasurer and governor <laughs> no. of Rhode Island? And <laughs> no. This is no. the first step. No, I was just trying to get by, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's life-changing, you know. Same at any institution, like Harvard, like Chicago, certainly for a kid like me, it was life-changing. I often, t I shared a bed with my sister growing up, and I joke, like, I was psyched to have my own bed and, and be on my own. A bit yeah. when I get to college. It's an amazing place. I studied economics. Turns out I was pretty good at economics. I rose to the top of my class in economics. But here you are, this, this kid from Rhode Island, and suddenly you're studying with 
the greats of the greats, and they're teaching you. So I, I soaked it all up. It was fantastic. You know, speaking of economics, I missed uh, something in my notes here. Um, and that is your dad. He, he worked at Bulova. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which ultimately, which was based in Rhode Island, um, and he had a pretty good job there. Mm-hmm. Um, Bulova went away. Yeah. His job went away. Um, talk, talk about the impact on him and what you remember about that. Yeah. So I, I will tell you that is why I ran for governor. So insofar as his story and my family's story is the story of Rhode Island and I think probably a lot of um, Midwestern states. So for those of you who don't know Rhode Island, I'll forgive you, although you have to come visit. Now that you're hearing from me, you have to come visit. Um, Rhode, the story of Rhode Island is we were once a jewelry manufacturing powerhouse. My dad worked at Bulova. There was We had spy down. They made watches. They made watches, sorry. Yeah. Bulova, Bulova watch, um, Tiffany, Coro, you know, it, it, it was, you talk about the ecosystem in Silicon Valley, but we had the ecosystem of jewelry. You know, there were electroplaters and machine shops, mm-hmm. and that, that's where people's dads worked. Um, I have such a memory. My dad would get in the car every morning with his lunch bag, and the car was filled with all of his buddies in the carpool. And as a kid, it seemed to me like there was a place for everybody at the factory. One guy was the security guard, one guy was a custodian, my dad was in electroplating. You know, it seemed secure. But gradually, the jewelry manufacturing business went away in Rhode Island, right? It all went to, his company closed down, jobs went to Asia, most of the jewelry jobs went to China. And I'd say on a personal level, that was really tough. He was 56 years old, Mm. he had three kids to support, my mom never worked. What do you do with that? Frightening. Beyond frightening. Beyond yeah. frightening. Crushed his confidence. Yeah. I mean, just think, think about that. 56 years old, he'd worked there. It was the one job he had. Yeah. But that is Rhode Island because our leaders did absolutely nothing. Before I ran for governor, my dad and I were talking. And he said, Gina, our leaders let us down. They just watched the dismantling of these manufacturing jobs, and they did nothing to get us into new businesses. And in his words, he said, you know, in Massachusetts, they got into computers. Now, that's what he said, because Route 128 got into software. Yes. He said, we just stayed still, got stuck. And all my buddies and I were all left out. And so when I ran for governor to try to, I'm not bringing jewelry back. I'm not bringing that kind of manufacturing back, and I'm not going to lie and pretend that I am. But let's get Rhode Islanders a chance in jobs that are growing. Yeah, and that's important. And I want to get—I'm going to yeah. get to that in a yeah. second. But the, you know, when I read that story about your dad. It struck me that his story is the story of a lot of other people, and not just in Rhode Island. So many. Uh, and uh, this whole discussion of—I mean, if you look at sort of the. I mean, I look at it in, in sometimes in a political context about you know, where the base of President Trump's support is, but there are a lot of men in that age bracket yeah. who have gone through these economic dislocations. It's also true that uh, there's a disproportionate uh, susceptibility to the opioid 
100%. crisis in in this group. And, um, you know, I, I think that there is the, uh, the, the terror of not being able to pay your bills and meet your responsibilities. But there's also an element of, uh, about dignity and self-worth exactly. yeah. that may be even more, uh, more crushing. So for, for a while after that happened, you know, once in a while my dad was not in the cheeriest of moods. And as kids, we didn't love that. And my mom would say, you guys don't get it. You don't understand how crushing that was to your dad. Like it was a blow to his pride. He had been the breadwinner. Um, he never really, it's hard when you're 56, especially then, you know, to, to restart. When I was running for governor, uh, as they said in the introduction, Rhode Island's unemployment rate was sky high, highest in the country. And the unemployment rate in the building trades, plumbers, pipe fitters, carpenters, was about 25%. Yeah. Whoa is right. Think about that. 25%. That means there were people, mostly guys, who had been out of work for a year or two. And I would sit with them and listen to them when I was campaigning. And they would say, uh, I haven't had a job in a year. I'm about to lose my house. I'm about to, my marriage is falling apart. And then the worst thing is they'd say, and I, and I lost my pride. I have no confidence. I have no confidence anymore. And that, by the way, today in Rhode Island, the unemployment rate in the building trades is 2.5% because I was just so motivated to help those guys. Mm. And I think I saw my dad in a lot of them. The, the people don't, my thing is, I've learned being governor, people don't want to hand out, you know? Actually, there's all this discussion about free stuff. People just want a chance to have a decent job and some dignity and pride and take care of their family. So you sort of hint at this, and I know you've spoken widely on this, that you, <coughs> excuse me, you, uh, you don't have much um, store for the notion of uh, universal basic income or some sort of guaranteed income that would put a floor uh, under people. Why not? You know, I'd be more inclined to be behind something that was a guaranteed job than a guaranteed basic income. You know, I, I think we ought to, our party ought to be the party of work and ought to be the party of dignified work. And maybe that's my own story. I, I saw in my family and in my own life, there's dignity in work. By the way, that, me, that means work has to pay yeah. decent wage. You don't know how many people in my state have a full-time job and they're poor enough to collect food stamps and be on Medicaid. That's not dignified work. Um, but guaranteed basic income is more troubling to me. I'd rather give a robust wage subsidy than uh, a guaranteed basic income. Because mm -hmm. I think that, like I already said, I think we ought to be the party of work and move in that direction. You said you'd rather have a work program. You know, I, I was uh, hiking recently in, in one of the, in Big Sur, in one of the parks there, and there yeah. were these structures that were built during the Depression. Um, and I thought... Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm sure people took pride in in building these that are still standing now in 2019 and enhance the 
beauty of this. I think there'd be all kinds of tumult in the discussion about uh, with unions and so on yeah, about yeah. this this kind of work. But I don't know. I I, I used to uh, Paul Simon, who was the senator mm. from Illinois, of course, yeah. used to say, "I'd rather pay people for doing something than for doing nothing." Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, you know, today, if you go into a union hall, uh, like Electricians Union Hall in Rhode Island, there's a different skip in their step uh, than this, certainly than there was when I was running. It, as you said, it's not just the job. There's pride and dignity. You talk about the opioid crisis. It is such a crisis in Rhode Island, and it's absolutely related in part to people being out of work or disconnected. I have a big initiative now that we're launching around recovery-friendly workplaces. A friend of mine said to me, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connectedness. And having a job is key to sustaining your recovery if you're you know, recovering from addiction. So anyway, I just think there needs to be a lot more focus on making sure there's a place in this economy for everybody and everybody, we got to get everybody the skills they need to get a decent job, and we need to make sure we have enough of those jobs. Just to get back to the, your own story, uh, you, you went on to Oxford. Was it, what, what, was it a Rhodes thing? Yeah, or? it was a Rhodes Scholar, yeah. A Rhodes thing. A Rhodes thing. A Rhodes, yes. A Rhodes thing. One of those Rhodes things. <laughs> uh, fun, fun fact, um, Eric Garcetti was in my Rhodes class, and Cory Booker was a year ahead of us, and Bobby Jindal was a year ahead of me. I see. Uh, so a training, a training ground for politicians is, is, is what that program is. Um, Good and bad. Yeah, yes. Um, I'll let everybody, there's something for everybody to exactly, choose from there. Right, exactly, um, And then you went to law school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So was it just that you just loved I being a confused. student? I confused, yeah. I told you, my kids said, you're good at school. Yeah. Uh, but did you know why you were going to law school? Great question. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and it turns out either I wasn't good at it or wasn't cut out for it. I wish I had known that before the $100,000 of debt I took on. That's my warning to all the young people here. Don't go to professional school until you're sure. I came out of law school deeply in debt and then fell in love with a guy similarly in debt. We started our life together, $150,000 in debt. You know. Not good. Not good. Good husband, bad debt. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> you did clerk for I did. a federal judge. I clerked for Kimba Wood, who is amazing. And my... F she just did the Michael Cohen she, trial. She did the Michael Cohen trial. A long time ago, she did the Michael Milken. She was someone who sentencing. was thought about for the Supreme Court. She was, and I think she'd be extraordinary on the Supreme Court. President Clinton put her up as Attorney General. She yes. was extraordinary. Look, the thing is, I just it wasn't for me. As it turns out, what but why? I, yeah, what I like doing better is building teams, running something to solve problems. Um, which isn't to say that being an advocate isn't a dignified profession, because it is. I am just better at, I think, what I do now as an executive, like build a team. I love recruiting the best people I can find, setting out to solve some problems, and just going after it. 
And that was, I found, more in business. I needed a job to make some money, because I had all these yes, debts. Yes, the debts. Yes, we've established um, that. And then, <laughs> well, these guys can relate. Yeah, they can, um, sadly. You know, it determines what you do, where you live, who you marry, what job you take. Yeah. And uh, she's nodding. And then, and then but I, I always knew I wanted to do something more public, um, I didn't know that would be running for office per se, but in any event, I just, I, when I was in the venture capital business, I loved working with entrepreneurs. I loved it. I loved seeing these people who thought they were going to change, who were changing the world with a new product. We would build a team, do the financing, do the strategy and go after it. For me, that's exciting. Before we, um, before we move forward on that, cause you, I want to talk to you about your move back to Rhode Island. Yeah. But, um, student loans. Um, is a huge interest to people here, and it's a huge burden for the country. I mean, you're talking about yeah. trillion and a half dollars in debt yeah. or something, and it does affect the decisions that people make. You've said you don't, you're not into free stuff. Uh, on the other hand, isn't there an economic interest for the country to make sure that we have a highly educated workforce? Yes. No, listen, absolutely. Um, though I would distinguish, so I look at, I, I brought about tuition-free community college for every Rhode Islander, and I'm very proud of that. Um, so anyone in Rhode Island who graduates high school can go to our community college two years tuition-free. I don't think of that so much as free stuff as... Uh, providing necessary amount of public education to get a good job. So once upon a time, we decided as a country that we were going to provide free public education until 12th grade. Well, that made sense when you could get a decent job with a 12th grade education. But you, it's, you really can't anymore. And I don't think it's fair to say to people, hey, we're only going to take care of you up until 12th grade you can't really get a good job with, unless you have something more than 12th right. grade. And by the way, you have to drive yourself into debt to get that. So yeah. I just, I, my vision and what I'm trying to do in Rhode Island is making it so that every Rhode Islander can get the job training or education they need to get a good job. And by the way, it's also about equity. You know, since we've done the community college program, we've seen a doubling in applications <clears throat> much more so for people of color, kids, students of color. We've seen a huge increase in on-time graduation rate, kids on path to graduate, twice as much so for kids of color. I mean, the thing you've got to realize, and it, it, I'm reminded of it every day because I talk to people all the time. It's a great thing about being a governor. You don't have to go to Washington. You get to stay in town. Especially in a state like Rhode Island. Yeah, you, you meet like, people. You can't like hide on the other side of the state. <laughs> exactly. You I'm going to be downstate. I'll exactly. see you next week. No, 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 no that does not work. The, yeah. No, if you, if you try that, oh, I can't make that event. I have another event in Providence. We'll wait a half hour. You can, <laughs> we'll start an hour later for you, Gov. You can just get there when you can get there. Uh, I lost my train of thought. But the uh, community college. Training. Right. Well, let me ask head. you a different element of that. Uh, and tell me if I'm wrong about this. I, I, my understanding was you also offered incentives for 
students who uh, uh, were STEM students who agreed yeah. to stay in the state and work in the state for a period of time, four, four years. years or something? Yeah, so we said that if you go to any school in Rhode Island, public or private, you know, so could be Brown or CCRI or anything in between, and you graduate with a STEM degree, if you take a STEM job in Rhode Island, we'll help you pay back your student loans for four years, uh, as long as you stay in that job. Huge, hugely successful. Is it still in place? Yeah, yeah, I just started it um, three years ago. I see. And it's all back to the thing I said at the beginning. I gotta turn the tide on Rhode Island's economy from old line manufacturing to mm-hmm. high growth jobs of today. And that's a talent supply. You know, some people have referred to Rhode Island as the rust belt of the Northeast. We relied on manufacturing. I left that out of my introduction. (laughs) For too long, for too much of our economy, for too long. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be in the, you know, I want our people to be like in the flow of these good jobs, which means they need to be educated. So for, for us, it's, it's about helping these kids with debt. But frankly, it's about keeping them in Rhode Island so companies come to Rhode Island to hire these young people. And do you broker the, I mean, is there a job board that the state yeah. is involved in and trying to? It's not as official as a job board, but we help to essentially match up the companies with these, we call them wave maker fellows. So the people that have the scholarship, wave maker yes. fellows. Yeah, we have lots of networking events, matching events. And do you, have you, are you offering incentives to companies to yeah. locate in Rhode Island? That, that's sometimes controversial. It is, I think, always controversial. And what, here's my view on it. I think like if every state would unilaterally disarm, I would too. But seeing as how Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, all my neighbors use these incentives, I can't run the risk of us being left behind. I'd like to think, I know we've structured them in the smartest way possible, which is to say, you don't get a dime until you've created the job. If the job goes away, the incentive goes away. And it's all geared to incentivizing higher wage jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you moved back to Rhode Island. Yeah. Uh, was that for family reasons, or was that because you had aspirations? Or no, you started your own venture capital firm in Rhode Island. I did. I would say it was for career reasons, and that's true, because I had an opportunity to start my own firm with another guy who was well uh, established in the business. But anyone who's grown up in a small, tight-knit Italian-American family in Rhode Island knows it's only a matter of time before you're back <laughs> in Rhode Island. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when, I, uh, when we were talking about getting married, my husband and I, I say, you know we're going to raise our family in Rhode Island. And, and he, he says, as long as I don't have to call myself Anthony. Exactly. I'm, no, I'm, and he I'm was in. like, no, 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 you can't be serious about that. There's 49 other states. I'm like, mm, that's pretty much the deal. Yeah. Uh, but he loves it. Well, at least you were upfront about yeah, it. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and, <laughs> excuse me, you, you had success in that. What, what was the trigger point for your decision to run for a state treasurer? I've, I mean, you came out of outside of politics. There was the trigger point. I'll tell you, there was a very specific trigger point. I had been running my business, raising my family. Um, you have 
I have two kids. Two I have kids. a son and a daughter. My brother and sister and all their kids still live in Rhode Island. My parents, my dad was alive at the time. So it's, you know, it's a great thing. It's an awesome scene in the summer to go to the beach and see all the cousins running around. Yeah. So we were, it was all great. But anyway, uh, I had been feeling a little restless. Lots of votes. Lots right. of you start with a base of votes right there. <laughs> exactly. They were all kids at the time, but that's true. <laughs> uh, actually, if I in, could In Chicago, be... we would have voted them. <laughs> that's a joke. That is a... That's a joke. If I could be elected by um, 10-year-old girls, I think I'd get 90% of the vote. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big fan group, which I love, actually. Um, anyway, I had been feeling frustrated and disappointed, truthfully, with our state's leaders. I just was kind of sick of either corruption. Which you have a lot of there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not fair being, bit. Not for me to judge being from here, but, um, exactly. but you, you've had a big problem there. Pot Buddy Cianci was probably the most famous politician exactly. in Rhode Island. Went to jail. He was a mayor that went to jail. So either corruption or lack of vision, you know, like I already talked about. So I had been thinking I would want to do something. Anyway, one day I was reading the paper, and my husband was constantly saying, Gina, you either need to stop complaining or do something about it, F fair. So one day I was reading the newspaper and there was an article in the paper, big profile article, about how on account of budget shortfalls, um, certain public library branches were gonna be closed, library hours were gonna be cut, you know, no nights, no weekends, the bus service was gonna be curtailed, and it was visceral for me. I put the paper down. I said, Andy, I'm going to run for office. I'm going to do something about this. Because it was the public bus that got me to high school, the public library where my grandpa went to learn English. You know, my dad went to college on a GI Bill, public schools. And it, it just felt to me like it, it, people were getting a raw deal. Turns out, a big part of the reason that there weren't enough resources for schools, buses, after school sports was because our pension system was a disaster, terribly underfunded, and sucking a lot of resources away. So I decided to run for treasurer. It was a financial job. I was actually qualified. Yeah. Refreshing. And uh, I could go after the pension issue, which I did. And that, you, you say that sort of matter-of-factly. That was, a, that was a battle, that was a titanic battle. We're sitting here in Illinois, we've got the worst pension problem in the country, so I'm interested in, in yeah. your experience and how you went about it, and, and the, you know, there were some lingering, uh, there was some lingering unhappiness with you among some public employee unions, yeah. uh, and probably some progressive uh, voters uh, for Paring down the pension system. No, no doubt about it. Absolutely true. By the way, I know about your pension problems because when I was the treasurer, I would, you know, stay up late and really try to understand the problem. And you pour over all these actuarial tables and this, that, and the other. And Rhode Island was always among the very worst. 
but occasionally I would find one Yeah, no, we're number. here to make you feel better. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> occasionally I'd find one number, which was worse than Rhode Island, and then I would always look over and it would always be Illinois. So I, I felt slightly, you know, less alone yeah. than that. Yeah, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you feel better, but, Governor. <laughs> I pay taxes here. <laughs> you could move. Uh, anyway, but look it, let me say this. It's a hard issue. I, at the time that I decided to do it, I felt there was no alternative because it was dishonest to tell people, hardworking school teachers and public employees, that their pension was going to be there because I didn't think it was. And my heart broke for, I remember seeing a little kid and she was sad because they were cutting middle school sports at her, in her school. By the way, since we did pension reform, they've reinstated middle school sports at that, in that school district. So, but I will go into, I, my, my tagline was, this is, I'm just telling you the truth. Please don't be mad at me. Be mad at all the guys before me who didn't tell you the truth and led you to believe that, this that, the, was money secure, that the money would be there. I'm not gonna lie to you, I don't think it will be. And um, back to my dad, I would go into a lot of big, angry, crowded union halls. I talked to anybody, I didn't shy away from it. I went straight in and said, we got a problem, these are the facts, I'd like to fix it. They were not happy, as an understatement. My dad said to me, I wouldn't be happy either, you're telling me to take away their pension. That's right, I mean people thought that they were, they were given a promise, Yeah. they fulfilled their end, now they're reaching the end of their careers. By the way, they careers. Right. none of those people did anything wrong. At the time I was doing that, Chris Christie was governor of New Jersey, and he was doing his own version of pension reform. And he, so I watched what he was doing, and he would go into the teacher's hall and say things like, uh, you know, pretty over the top horrible, I think horrible things, you know, you're lazy, quit your whining, whatever. I would say, essentially, I'm sorry, but I'm just here to tell you, the math doesn't add up, and if you're a 35-year-old school teacher now, it will not be there for you in 30 years when you need it. And I would say, if I were you, I'd be mad too, you did nothing wrong. You played by the rules. You paid in every single week. You did what people told you. But the system is broken. So um, what I'm sure some of them said, why don't you get, go get that money from these people in those Gatsby-like mansions yeah. uh, along the ocean uh, who can afford to pay? And that's, what you, that's the progressive push back, which is yeah. progressive, more progressive taxation. There was some of that. Um, the magnitude of the whole, and I can only speak for Rhode Island, but the magnitude of the whole relative to how few you know, wealthy people we had, it was like apples and oranges. Uh, so we did, look, it does take both. But the fact of the matter is, even if you did that, and of course you could do more of that in a, in a big, wealthier state like Illinois, um, you still have to restructure the system. Like yeah. the system. I mean, the problem here in Illinois, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem here in Illinois is that um, you can't restructure the system, at least going backward, because the state constitution forbids it. Your state constitution did not True. forbid it. Change your constitution. My view is this is an everybody issue. 
I, again, I don't know your situation, so I, I, I joked about it before, but I'm not an expert on your numbers. I can just tell you my situation. It wasn't going to fix itself on its own. The longer you waited, the more people would get hurt. And at the time, my kids were in Providence Public School. My daughter was in first grade. Her first grade teacher was unbelievable, like incredible. And she was in her mid-30s, and I just couldn't look at her because I knew her pension wasn't going to be there when she needed it, and I knew I had to do something, and I couldn't look at the little girl who couldn't do after-school soccer. Like, I just felt we got to find a solution here, and we did. By the way, it was contentious, lots of protests against me. Against me. I had a wicked primary when I ran for governor. No, they, and they punished you by making you governor. They <laughs> But in the end, the legislature voted practically unanimously for the bill that I put forward. Like, we got it done. We solved a problem. It was tough. I think everybody was part of it. But it was the right thing to do. And today, I can say to you, we, we're bringing about tuition-free community college. Our unemployment rate is as low as it's ever been. We're investing in our roads, rebuilding all our schools. All day kindergarten, preschool. I've brought up bringing about all day kindergarten. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you also have had problems in K through 12 as well. I think the Providence schools yeah. uh, have, the state has taken them over, is that right? We're in the process of it, yeah. That must be contentious as well. It is, yeah. Someday I should try something easier. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I just think it's, it's, it's a moral imperative and an economic imperative. And What will the state do to improve those schools? How will it help those schools to be operated by the state or mm. overseen by the state? So there's no one thing. I think it's a new and higher quality curriculum, much more and better teacher development. Uh, there are probably some schools that have to be merged or closed. They're just so far gone, you know, physically and what's happening. I mean, it's, it's going to be a long process. But it was, look, the scariest thing to me is how much worse the schools have become in the past five or six years. So they're not only bad, but they're bad at getting worse. They are 60% Latino, the vast, vast majority free and reduced lunch. Our kids, we're lucky enough, they have a choice. These kids in Providence, they don't have a choice. They got one school to go to. And it's on us to make it a good school that, so they get a good education. And I can't help. You, we just told you my whole story. The only thing that, that got me to where I am is education, period. It is still the great equalizer. And we have to do this. So it'll be hard. We'll make mistakes. It'll be controversial. How's this been received by the teachers' union? Um, so far, they've been great, actually. By the way, if you're a teacher in Providence, Chances are you don't feel supported. You might not feel safe. We haven't been doing a good enough job with security. You teach in a building with uh, terrible building conditions. You don't have enough professional development. So I think there's, we're going to do this in a way that's supportive of teachers. So it turns out that you don't have enough to do, so you became chairman of the Democratic exactly. Governors Association. Yeah. Um, and you actually became the chair at a, at a propitious moment because uh, Democrats took, uh, what, seven mm -hmm. governorships 
in 2000, year last year. Yeah. 2018. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me, tell me. So I'm, now I'm asking you to put your political hat on. Um, tell me how you evaluate the national scene uh, as it affects Democrat candidates who are going to be running in 2020. Some of whom are your charges. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I would say I think the folks running in 2020 could learn a thing or two from the governors who won in 18. We had a fantastic year last year, we being Democratic governors. We elected Democratic governors in Wisconsin and Kansas and Maine, you know, places that people had really counted us out. Uh, I think we're going to uh, elect a Democratic governor in Kentucky this, this time around. It's a close race, but I feel good about it. And uh, Michigan, you know, great, great new Democratic governor in Wisconsin. Michigan. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Um, and we took out an incumbent. Illinois. Illinois, yeah. Forgot How Illinois. I forget that. I'm seeing JB tonight. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. F flips and places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas, where it was thought that you couldn't really elect a Democratic governor. And the way we did it is by being very focused on the things people care about. Health care, jobs, student debt. And we convinced the electorates of those states that our candidate was going to actually do something for them in those issues that they care most about. And I, so if you... Yeah, Gretchen Whitmer yeah. ran on the... Fix the damn fix roads. Fix the damn roads, yeah. You look at... Catchy. And true. Yeah. You know, again, when you're a governor, especially of a small state, but any state, you talk to people every day. It's a gift to be out of the beltway, I think. I really do. You were saying earlier in the green room, we're all kind of weary of current events and current political you know, issues, which are extreme. When you're out in the coffee shop in Rhode Island, it's honestly not what's coming up. What's coming up is, like last night I saw a woman. She's dressed that uh, her husband's hours just got cut back, and that's a big financial strain on her family. How am I, I can't, I'm never gonna be able to buy a house because I have all the student debt. Where do I find 200 bucks to pay the copay that's required to take my kid to the doctor? This is real, this is every day. We better, we better have the candidate that convinces people they can do something about that. So you, um, you're focused on these Rhode Island problems, but you, have you been following this impeachment thing? <laughs> <laughs> This is this has become quite a thing in you Washington. No, we shouldn't laugh. Yeah. No, it's not funny you know, at all. It's, but it's, but the reason I ask it is because you you know you the the Republican strategy yeah. is to say these Democrats all they want to do is get rid of the president. They'll do anything to do it, yeah, and they're not really focused on the things yeah. they said they would be focused on. Is that an effective argument? I worry that it may be. For, let me say this. I think it's baloney. It's a podcast. You can say whatever. Okay. No. No. I, <laughs> fill in the blank. I think it's completely false. You were in the White House. Yes. Ask yourself. Imagine a world in which President Obama picked up the phone and called the leader of another country and tried to exchange political favors for 
um, security aid. Mm -hmm. It's unfathomable. Uh, so, you know, look at Do you think they, so you're, you're saying two things. Yeah, I am. I'm saying I am <coughs> angry and disturbed and disgusted with what's going on in this White House. And I, um, I'm in lockstep with the speaker. You know, I'm happy she held off, but I understand why she's doing what she's you doing You think now. she made the right decision? I do. Now. Yeah, I do. Look, I also say it's complicated. She has a hard job, and I, I trust what she's doing. I think mm -hmm. she's, she's, she's terrific and doing, I think, the best she can do and the right thing. But I also worry about how is it going to play on Main Street. Because honestly, well, that's why I ask, because you, you are on Main Street. Yeah, it's noise. I think it's noise. It's he said, she said, politicians. Oh, they're fighting again. And we've got to cut through that. I cannot emphasize enough the daily financial stress of the average person. Even people who are making a decent living by the time, let's say you're making, say, let's say you're doing very well, you're making six figures. You're paying for childcare, you're paying a lot of out-of-pocket costs for healthcare, you probably have student loan debt, you probably don't have a mortgage, you may have a mortgage, but people today can't even buy a house because they have so much debt. So you have a mortgage, you have rent payment, housing is a huge issue, huge issue. You are trying to get through the day or the week or the month. Right. It's that, so that's what I hear. Um, much more so than impeachment. It's just what you're saying is very consistent with what the candidates are saying, that when they go out, they get very few questions about impeachment. I yeah. imagine other than at fundraisers. But uh, when they go and do town hall meetings, uh, that's not, these are not the subjects that are coming up. But there is this danger that that is all going to be eclipsed because there's such a uh, frenzy about, you know, what is a historic, historically troubling time in our history? True, although I would say this. And, and again, I, I'm of two minds, as you can tell. I think we should That's throw... so unlike politicians. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should throw Trump out of office because he's trying to take away Americans' health care. I think we should throw Trump out of office because he's hurting manufacturers and farmers and taking away people's jobs. I could go on and on. In other words, he is... Hurting. But you wouldn't impeach him for those things. No, I wouldn't. But my point is that should be how we take him on. Because mm -hmm. if we only take him on around impeachment, I worry that that's kind of a, I hate to say high class issue, but it's, a, it's an issue that's, obs you know, pick up any paper today or read Twitter. It's an obsession. And it should be. These are grave, grave, grave historic issues. But again, if you're the average person, worried because your kid has an ear infection and you can't pay to take your daughter to the doctor and if you don't show up at work you're not going to get paid and your car might break down you're not thinking about impeachment you're thinking about getting paid getting your kid to the doctor and putting food on your table and you know but here's the paradoxical so thing. I think we got to take him on on those issues because he's bad for America and he's hurting people 
and any candidate we have running will be better than him. Here's, here's, the, uh, here's the paradoxical question. I accept everything that you're saying, uh, but his, his electoral strength seems to lie in those places where those anxieties are the most acute. Uh, why is that? Because, first of all, he lies to people and says, I'll make it all better. But second of all, he doesn't try to deny it, right? Like Deny. Deny how bad things are for them. People don't, people who Although he does say the economy is never better. Yeah, again, he lies. Point A, he's a liar. But, you know, look, people, to say that things are getting better isn't really true for a lot of people. Yeah. Do you think that the beatdown that he takes from the media and uh, Hollywood, New York, and elite commentators and so on, do you think that actually works for him with his... For some people, yeah, mm -hmm. for some people. Now, you, uh, you were lionized, I would say, in a column by my friend Frank Bruni in the New York Times in January called The Loneliness of the Moderate Democrat. Mm. Um, do you feel lonely? <laughs> Not when I'm with you. <laughs> okay, good. Can I tell you a funny Frank Bruni story? Yes. About, I had a primary last year. Uh, I was reelected last year. I had a primary, uh, quote unquote, progressive, and then a general. Two, three weeks before my primary, Frank called, and he said, Gina, you're getting killed. You're going down, you know, something to that effect. I said, That must have been bad news. I was like, thanks for the pick-me-up, Frank. You know what it's like in those last two weeks. I said, what do you, you know, I don't think I am. What, what are you thinking? And he said, that, you know, like, they hate your social media sucks. They hate you. Your Twitter, they're all over you on Twitter. Your Instagram, terrible. They hate you on Facebook. Um, and by the way, he was right. If you had read my Twitter, if you had read the Twitter commentary about me in the weeks before the primary or the Facebook commentary, you would have said, Jeannie, you're going down. I won by 22 points. So... There's a lesson in there for everyone. Yeah, don't take Twitter too seriously. Yeah, it's the, it is the noisy, angry minority. There have been some poll, there's been some polling now about um, polling people on the same issues, people who are on Twitter and who aren't on Twitter, Democrats um, who are on Twitter and not on Twitter. So for example, on the issue of, um, of decriminalizing the border mm. um, had strong support among Twitter subscribers who call themselves Democrats, but uh, among others, two to one opposed. And that, uh, I guess that is related to the point yeah. you're making. No, it's, it's exactly, and it, it's similar actually to this impeachment, you know, what we're talking about. If you read the New York Times, as I did this morning, it's what there is in the Times, you know, cover to cover. And listen, it's important. It's, I'm not trying to say it's not. But I think we've got to meet people where they are. And like, for example, in Rhode Island, um, I'm a believer in the Affordable Care Act. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's working in Rhode Island. 
96% of Rhode Islanders have health care. We have a state-based exchange, which is working. I announced a decrease in premiums on the exchange this year. So 98% of kids have coverage. So again, maybe I will that, move to Rhode Island. I don't know. You should see. Um, you're warm. Come visit us in the warm months. But it's it's going well. I feel I'm constantly at war with the president to protect the Affordable Care Act for Rhode Islanders. We, when he was first starting to unravel it, I did everything I could, working with our federal delegation and protesting and making noise. We passed an individual mandate now in Rhode Island. We have the individual mandate in state law. We're using the proceeds of that money for a reinsurance product to keep our um, exchange stable. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that's what people want to see us fighting for, them keeping their job, keeping their health care, going to college, take on the president for that because I think that'll let people know, yeah, I get it. I get your life's really hard, and I'm going to try to make it better for you. You, um, at the end of Frank's column, you probably wished that he had ended that column one paragraph earlier. Right, have to he you. quoted you as saying, something, I don't think the lefties bad. can win a general election, uh, Raimondo said, but she conceded, who knows? I'm not running in 2020. I could have missed the boat. Uh, who are the lefties, and what are your concerns? Um, <laughs> yes, I wish that it had ended a sentence sooner. I'd like to say in my defense, we had that interview over several glasses of wine and in a restaurant. Yes. No to all politicians, an, don't do that. Frank's an excellent journalist. He's such a good journalist, I know. And a great picker of red wine and good food. Oh, absolutely. Um, you used to be the restaurant critic at I, the time. Tell me, by the way, the stress of that. Hey, Gina, I'm coming to visit you. You pick the restaurant. Yeah, I know. Stress. You never, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, but he says I've done okay. And I, you all should come to Rhode Island for an Italian meal. Uh, the question was, who are the lefties and why do I worry? Yes. Because what I, what I already said earlier, you know, um, I don't want to pick on Bernie when he's in the hospital, and I hope he gets better quickly, but when you say, as I was referring to there, you know, I worry about free this, free that, Medicare for all. Um, well, Elizabeth, War sure. Elizabeth Warren is the, uh, probably the front runner right now. I yeah, mean, agreed. And um, do you, I mean, and she embraces his position on Medicare for all, mm -hmm. and she has her own uh, pretty expansive uh, set of ideas about uh, what, what should be done. Uh, do you share the, the same concern about her? Uh, I would say somewhat to a lesser extent. Let me say I think she's doing, running an extraordinary campaign. Agreed. I yeah. mean, she is the front runner because she's earning it. Yeah. She is out there. She is hustling. She is organizing. She is a believer. I think you know, she is an authentic believer, yeah. a brilliant woman with great policy ideas. So, okay. like, but I worry uh, in a general election that many, many, many people in this country do have health care, which they are, you know, which is working for them. I'm not sure Medicare for all is the right way to go. I think certainly, like I already said, what's happening in Rhode Island. The Affordable Care Act is working here. It's not mm -hmm. working in a lot of other states. We have to do better. 
I think Medicare for all is a tough message in a general election. What about some of these other issues, the border issue? Um, Listen, I am at Reparations. A, yeah, so here's what I think about that. Stay on the issues that matter most to people in their daily lives. Uh, you talked before about immigration. There's a lot of fear about immigration. I don't think we can dismiss that. People are stressed out that they're going to lose their jobs to an immigrant who will do their job for less money. You can show me 52 charts that explain to me that that isn't going to happen. Or that 80% of those jobs are going to be lost to robots and computers. Exactly. And, and I know all the charts. I know about robotics. I know about AI. I know. I get I know, it. You, okay? You were the valedictorian. I'm a nerd. Exactly. Yeah. I am a total <laughs> nerd, good at school. I get it. Yeah. I'm just telling you, like my dad, other people, there's a lot of people who go to work with a pit in their stomach every day, stressed that they're either going to lose their job to someone who's coming in from another country, or they're going to be asked to do more for less because an immigrant is willing to work for less. And I think we just have to acknowledge that people feel that way and don't try to convince them that they shouldn't. Uh, we got to go, but I want to ask you about your own future. You're term limited? Is that I right? am. Three and a half years to go, but who's counting? Uh, and do you, uh, do you see, you seem to really be energized by public service. Do you see yourself yeah. staying in public service? Uh, I don't know, is the truthful answer. I like being an executive. Um, don't know that I would be cut out Cabinet for agency. legislative branch. I'm committed to Rhode Island, I'll say that. Okay. For, I got three know, and a half All the candidates years. listen to this podcast, and I want them to know if you're available, if they should. I have a very busy day job in Rhode Island. Okay. Governor Raimondo, so good to be with you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. The time went fast. Okay, it's, it's your time now. If you have questions, uh, line up be, behind that microphone there. And um, I'm glad you're going to ask them because you can cover all the stuff I forgot to. Yeah, please. Hi, Governor. Thanks for being here. How Hi. did you know you were prepared to run for governor, that you had the right answers? and? you had the right team to do the job that you were doing? Um, you know, I'm not sure that I did or that I was or that I even am, but I, I just, first of all, I was pretty sure I could do a better job than the guys who were doing the job. And we have <coughs> the highest unemployment rate in the country. I felt like I have to be able to do better than that. And secondly, I just, I, I really cared. You know, I knew that I would care more and work more and find the people to help me out, and we would get the job done. Um, so if, are you thinking about you might want to run for something? Maybe. You should do it. You should do it. Uh, don't wait until the time is perfect. Don't second guess your abilities. Find something you care a lot about. The advice I always give people is figure out what you want to do with the position. Don't run just to run. Do not run just to run. What do you want to do with the job? Like, I wanted to run for treasurer to fix the pension crisis. I wanted to be governor to get our economy going again. And then just go for it. 
Um, and quick, quick, quick follow-up. You, you started to get at it, and, and I had a run, but given all your emphasis on executive action, mm. um, could you see yourself, I, I'm, you know, there may be a Senate seat that opens up in your state, or can you see yourself uh, in the world's greatest deliberative body? Yeah, it's, it's hard to envision that for myself. Also, I think my kids would veto that, at mm -hmm. least now, you know, going back and forth. Yeah. I don't so know. Hi, thank you, Governor. My name is Kat Burnham. I'm in my second year of my master's at the Harris School of Public Policy. Before that, I actually lived and worked in Rhode Island for five years. Fantastic. Um, speaking of the Senate, I know it's Senator Whitehouse's Energy, Oceans, and Environment Day, mm -hmm. so I'll ask a question about that. Um, while I was working in Rhode Island, I got to see you sign Rhode Island to the principles of the Paris Accord, commit Rhode Island to expanded renewable energy, saw Block Island wind go up. Um, I've been out of the loop. How is Rhode Island doing on the climate goals? How are the green jobs going? Would love to hear about how things are going. As Rhode, When I left, Rhode Island wanted to grow its green economy, eager to hear how that's working. Uh, thank you. You should come back. You should see me after, and we'll lure you back to Rhode Island. Um, my, my only reason I'm even a little bit successful is I get really, really good people who know more than I do to join on board, so I'm serious. Uh, we're doing great. You know, look, it's never enough. I'm a mother of teenagers. I worry about them and their future, and they're worried about it. It's, it's urgent for them. You know, they're going to be alive in 2015 and 2060. And I want them to, and, and I want, and hopefully I will be too, but I, you know, they'll be having their own families. So the answer is we're doing well. Um, we're actually exceeding the goals that I set out. When I started as governor, I said we were going to uh, make our energy supply 10 times cleaner uh, by next year, 2020. And I think we'll be m more like 11 times. And so I'm extending the goal so we reach higher. The growth in green jobs has also exceeded expectations. We've seen like 70% increase in increase of green jobs. The wind farm, Rhode Island is home to North America's only offshore wind farm. You should come visit to see that, just like that, that alone is a reason to visit. But I just procured 400 megawatts of offshore wind energy, which is a lot for a tiny state, I'll leave it at that. So, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm uh, impatient to be doing more faster, but we're hitting the goals that we set out to. I wanna tackle transportation next, and I'm eager to take a leadership role with other governors in my region to come up with a regional transportation climate initiative, because as you all know, 30, 40% of emissions are from transportation, and we really haven't done enough there. Are you guys in the suit uh, against the president's? Yeah, yes. Rolling uh, back of the waivers? Oh, wait, say that. For California, the, 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 the fuel efficiency standards. No, we are in a different loss. We are in several lawsuits. I don't think we're in that one. <laughs> okay. People say to me, what's it like to be governor, a Democratic governor in the age of Trump? I'm like, honestly, it's exhausting because you're fighting so many things. Yeah. You know, you're the last kind of line of defense between him and your citizenry on everything, the environment, healthcare, opioids. Yeah. So it's an exhausting thing to just fight back constantly. Immigration, yeah. 
refugees. It was unbelievable. Tiring to be a voter, too. Yeah, fair enough. So first of all, thank you for coming to the University of Chicago to speak with us. My name is Jesse Weinstein. I'm a first year here at the university planning to study political science and economics. So you spoke earlier about the importance of turning the tide of Rhode Island's economy um, and moving sort of beyond traditional manufacturing while also improving the living conditions of all these hardworking uh, Rhode Islanders and Americans. So how would you respond to concerns that guaranteed work could encourage workers and companies to remain invested in outdated sectors um, and uh, provide these inefficient incentives to impede Rhode Island and the United States from remaining integrated in a rapidly evolving world economy? Is there a way to sort of balance that so that we can move into the future while also caring for our workers? Yeah, great question, Jesse. So look, that all comes back to job training, skills, and uh, as I said, making sure every Rhode Islander, every American has the job training in it or education they need to get a good job. So, for example, I've done a lot around career and technical education in high schools. A lot of that has meant updating what we teach. So now, instead of just having, uh, say, body shop and auto mechanical, by the way, those are good jobs too, we have a lot of cyber tech training programs. CVS is a big employer in Rhode Island. So we had CVS adopt Woonsocket High School, very poor public high school, to train these kids to be pharmacy techs. So I think there has to be, and this is something I feel very strongly about, business has to be at the table helping us to solve these problems. Um, I'm as frustrated as anyone with the level of income inequality in this country, and I'm losing patience with businesses who don't provide, you know, who pay people so little that they are poor enough to be on Medicaid and food stamps. But you still have to tell them, come to the table and help us fix these problems. And some of that is helping us figure out what to train young people, and all people, mid-career people, so they're constantly up to date on where the jobs are and to being trained for jobs that exist today, not jobs that existed five or 10 years ago. To be honest, part of the reason my dad struggled after losing you know, his job at 56 was, what do you do when you're 56 and you've mm -hmm. only done one thing? Well, what you have to be able to do is go get retooled and retrained, which is incredibly hard for a job that does exist today. And business has to get to the table, invest, open their pocketbook, help us fund these training programs, and commit to hiring the people that come out of these whether it's high schools, apprenticeships, colleges, community college. Hi, Governor. Thank you for taking the time to come to the University of Chicago. My name is Manny Sasson. I'm a student at the Booth School of Business. Uh, my question for you is, you know, you hear a lot of talk, especially in the, in the current elections, about either taking our country back to, you know, a, pre, a very long time ago, or, you know, a lot of free stuff as you guys have mentioned. How have you navigated that um, political landscape and found success um, you know, providing more pragmatic solutions? And what advice would you give candidates that are running with who are more moderates to uh, connect with everyday Americans? You know, I focus a lot on growth. So instead of just 
fighting about how to divide the pie, we do have to focus as much on growing the pie. And that's what I've done in Rhode Island. I do think economic growth is key. But then the problem for the past 50 years has been all the benefits of the growth have gone to too few. And so we have to have a serious discussion at the federal level around raising taxes on the wealthy because we need it and we need to then drive that money into public infrastructure and public education and public transportation. Um, and as I was saying to Jesse, like a lot of people will need to be upskilled in order to be able to get a decent higher paying job. I think what President Trump does is, is dishonest and terrible because he just lies to people and says, we're bringing back coal, we're bringing back you know, manufacturing, we're bringing back the way it used to be. It's not going to come back. And so we gotta, and people kind of know that. But you have to provide an alternative. They gotta believe you that you will provide some alternative where they can take care of their family. Thank you. Governor, so appreciate you spending Thank time you with us. Thank you, guys. And, and, and being here today. And uh, uh, we will be watching with interest as you deliver um, massive victories for Democratic governors around the country. <laughs> massive. I have to elect Democratic governors this year in Louisiana, Kentucky, and Mississippi. Yeah. So wish me Good well. Good practice. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.